All right, so we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2. And it's, it's always important to remind yourself that Paul was a real person. He was writing a, a real letter to real people, and real people are messy. So, you know, we see this as scripture because it is, but the original, the original readers, not all of them, accepted what they read. They were humans. They were sinners. And so there was some drama going on and a lot of things that happened behind the scenes that we can't entirely reconstruct. But you may recall two weeks ago when we last studied this, Paul went on this long discussion of, I know you thought I was going to come visit you, and I know I told you I was going to come visit you. Here's why I didn't. If you remember, part of it was just circumstantial. Things happened. I wasn't able to get there. But then he also says this very mysterious sounding thing in, in verse 23 of chapter 1. He says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's going to say some more about that in this week's installment and what we're going to look at. And I say all that because as 21st century readers, because we don't know a lot of the details, sometimes we have a tendency to read those kinds of sections and just go, okay, get to the good stuff. But it's all scripture. And it's all a reminder that, that God's people, even though they're God's people, pastors included, are all human and they're all sinners. And there's going to be some messiness that you have to be patient with. It requires love, it requires patience, and it requires uh, sometimes some sternness, some courage, uh, as Paul shows here, a mixture of courage and compassion. But if you, if you stick with it, you get to some really exciting stuff toward the end of the passage in verses 14 through 17. So stick with me. Verse one, he says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So see, he's elaborating there. It was to, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming. Now he says, I didn't want to make another painful visit. So in other words, the last time he was with them, it was painful. Now, what does that mean? He says, verse two, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one to whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I, I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So let me sum all that up in saying, it appears that since, or we, it's, it's obvious that since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he's made a trip to Corinth and it was a painful visit. It appears that one of the reasons it was painful was there were people in the church who were accusing toward him or insulting towards him. Um, and there was a conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. I imagine it was because some people in the church didn't like what he wrote. 
Now there's, and then it talks about in verse five, there's this one who's caused me pain, but what you've done to him, the punishment you've already given him is enough. I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue to hold this against him. So I've forgiven him. You should forgive him too. He's being very gracious here. He does this because the whole purpose of punishment is redemption. It's not just punishment. That's important to remember, right? When we were raising kids, we, we all, our best moments were when we disciplined our kids out of love. Our worst moments were when we disciplined our kids out of anger. I don't think any one of us can stand here and say we never disciplined our kids out of anger, can we? I mean, there were times when we just got angry and said, okay, you go to your room and you don't come back for another 24 hours, you know, and that was totally irrational. We were just mad. But our best moments were when we said, okay, I'm not going to let you do this. And here's why. Okay, here's what I'm doing to you. And here's the lesson I'm trying to teach you. And that's what Paul is saying here. Any discipline we offer as a church is always, should always be intended to be redemptive, not Punitive. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about putting someone in their place. It's about the hopes that they will be redeemed. Because, as he says in verse 11, we all know that the devil is real and he seeks to divide us. His, his, uh, basically, when you look at the scriptures, there are two ways the enemy attacks churches. One is through spreading false doctrine and the other is through spreading division. And it's hard to say which one's more successful because both have a lot of success. Um, but I, I would say based on what I see in the scriptures and how often each of those two are talked about, division is his more common tactic because it's mentioned in every book of the New Testament. And so if he can take a, a time of conflict between church members and he can turn it into a forest fire, if he can take a little, a little spark, you know, someone dropping a cigarette and turn it into a forest fire, then he is one. And Paul's point is, if on the other hand, you take somebody who's causing trouble and you deal with them firmly but redemptively, then there's a real chance you can outwit the enemy and you can keep, you, you can even redeem that person. You can even bring that person back. And that's what Paul's encouraging them to do in this case. So what is he talking about specifically? We can't say for sure. There are some who think he's referring to what he talked about in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember the man who was uh, engaging in an immoral relationship with his own stepmother, and he had urged the church, put this one away from you. you know, put him out because he is, he is not following the Lord and you need to discipline him. And so some think that that's what Paul's talking about here. He's like, okay, you've already done what you need to do. Now bring him back in. He's, he's been redeemed. He's, been, he's come back. So welcome him back. That could be. Uh, the, the theory I think makes sense is that when Paul went to Corinth, there were people who attacked him and there was one person who was sort of the ringleader. And I think Paul's talking about that. He's talking about, okay, I know there was this guy who led the opposition to me and insulted me and hurt me. And you have, you have disciplined him for his actions, but I've forgiven him. So you should forgive him as well. Either way, we don't know, but either way, his, his point is that we need to consider the truth of the gospel and the, the unity of God's church over other, all other things, right? You don't compromise the truth of the gospel and you don't compromise the unity of the congregation. As long as you have both of those things in, uh, in mind, 
you're going to make good decisions. But if you fudge on one or the other, if you maintain unity by fudging around with the gospel, that's no good. If you stand tall for truth, but you're mean to people and you run people off and you treat people in unchristian ways, well, that's not conducive to the, to, to the spread of God's word either. So you have to be about both. So with all that said, he comes back in verses 12 and 13 and finally wraps it all up. Paul's, Paul's somebody who chases rabbits, and he's done that here. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So finally, he's wrapping it all up. He's saying, okay, this is why I went where I did. I meant to come see you, but circumstances weren't there. Plus, I didn't want to come back with a church that was fractured and just make things worse. Me showing up might have just been like throwing gasoline on the fire. But while I'm gone, before I come back again, I want you to make things right with this brother because I've forgiven him and you should too. And that sets Paul off on a new tangent. Now, can we be honest about something? Preachers chase rabbits sometimes and 90% of the time it's not good. 90% of the time it just... It doesn't work. You get lost uh, in what he's saying. And okay, now where was he before? I don't, I don't understand what this has to do with that thing he was talking about a while ago. Um, but Paul is a little different. Paul's an apostle. His words are not just his own. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when he chases a rabbit, it's always wonderful. <laughs> and this is a, a great rabbit trail, verses 14 through 17. And, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. It's like, okay, I've spent a chapter talking about this conflict and your expectations and how I let you down. I'm done with that. I just want to thank God, who leads us in triumphal procession. Now, I didn't know this until just a few years ago, but what Paul's talking about there is something very specific. We think of that as, oh, well, it's, it's just a general term of we're following Jesus into victory. No, in, in, Rome, in Roman culture, if a, a general won a battle, a big battle, and the, the empire wanted to honor that general, they would throw him what was called a triumph. It was a literal term. It was sort of like, when a team wins a World Series or a Super Bowl, we spend a lot of money to throw a big parade downtown. And everybody gathers and cheers and they throw ticker tape or confetti or whatever. You know, that's a lot of money that goes into that. But the city founders they say to themselves, well, it's going to be good for morale or whatever the case may be. Well, this is the same thing. If you were, if you were Caesar and you're, one of your top generals won a big battle, you'd have to ask yourself, is it worth the money? Well, I guess it is. I, I guess this is important enough. Let's throw a triumph for General whoever, General Maximus. And what that meant was everyone would gather in the streets of the city and they would cheer as the army marched past them. The general himself would lead the triumph. He would be sitting in his chariot, waving in his armor, and everyone would rejoice. And then behind him would come his legions in their armor, and they would look so impressive. And then last of all would come the defeated enemy. And they're stripped of their weapons, and they're stripped of their armor, and they're, they're probably shackled in some way, and they're just shuffling along humiliated. 
And that was a way, number one, of saying, look, this enemy is not to be feared anymore. Either way, this is not the only time Paul makes reference to this term. If you read the book of Colossians, one of my favorite little verses in Colossians, which is a great book, Colossians 2, he talks about how uh, Jesus has defeated the, uh, the authorities and the powers at the cross, and he has triumphed over them through the cross. In other words, Jesus, through his death on the cross, has done to those to, to the, the demonic powers that are against us, the devil and his forces, he has done to them exactly what a, an army does to, a, to an enemy. He has taken everything from them and he's bringing them in his rear. Uh, in other words, when we look at the cross, we see the defeat of Satan. Does Satan still exist? Yes. Are demons still around? Yes. But after the cross, we don't have to fear them. Now I'm chasing a rabbit trail. But there are Christians who are obsessed with the idea of demonic. And they read books about it. And they walk into, every time they walk into a room, they want to cast every demon out of the room. And, and they just, they're just fired up about that. And I want to say, as long as you've got Jesus, you don't have to worry about where the devil is. You really don't. You know, you may think the devil's in your, in your boss or in your ex-spouse or whatever, but that's their business. It's... Jesus is your Lord and the devil can't touch you. All he can do to you is what you give him permission to do. Okay? So that's, that's this idea. He leads us in triumphal procession. Now, one more thing on that, though. It's Christ's victory. It's Jesus that's being celebrated, not us. That's important to remember. Let's not get it mixed up, and sometimes Christian preaching these days does, as if God's job is to bring us glory. God's job is to, you know, you'll hear preachers talk about how God is going to expand your territory and God is going to give you a new platform and God, you know, God can do whatever he wants to do. And if he wants to take somebody in this room and, and put them in charge of a company that, you know, employs a thousand people or 10,000 people, that's great. If he wants to take somebody in this room and put them on television, that's his business. But that's not really his purpose. If he does that, it's only to glorify himself. So this triumphal procession is not a reference to, oh, that means we, we succeed in everything we do. No, it means Christ succeeds through us. And, and in the end, in the end, that turns out to be much more satisfying for us than if he had given us the success we wanted in the other things we were looking for. You see? Triumphal procession. God is gaining glory through us. And then it says, through us, he spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. And this is one of my favorite images in the Bible. Maybe because I like food uh, so much. But uh, there, it, it's funny that people ask, what are your favorite smells? And, and you, talk to, you talk to women and they'll say, well, I like daffodils. Or I like, uh, you know, I like lilacs. Or, you know, and you talk to a man and they'll be like, bacon. You know, I like... I like and tr truly, if my favorite smells, barbecue, cinnamon rolls, I mean, I, you just name it, it's, it's food. And I, I've noticed that food can have a, a tremendous impact on my mood. You know, if I smell that food, I'm, it, it just takes, takes me away from whatever I'm worried about or thinking about. Um, so imagine you're working in a big office full of cubicles 
and you go to lunch a little early and you bring it back and you've got a bag of, let's say, barbecue, because barbecue is a really good smell. It just is. That smoked meat. And you come in with it and it, it, that smell is going to permeate the room, right? Everyone in that office, it, it could be an office uh, twice the size of Harrington Hall. Everyone in the office is going to smell it. They'll be like, where did that, where is that coming from? Who, who just brought that in here? It's happened. You've seen it. And they'll be popping their heads up over the tops of their cubicles like prairie dogs. And, and people will be kind of following their nose to find out where it is. And when they find it, they'll see it and they'll say, where'd you get that? Is there any, did you bring enough? Can I share? Can, can I split that brisket with you? I mean, that's just the way it is. And the reason I love that image is we have this tendency to think, oh, how can Jesus use me? I mean, look at me. What can I, what do I have? I'm not educated and I've never really been that good a Christian and I don't, I'm not that articulate and I don't have any skills. How can Jesus use me? I'll, I'll just be content to pray and support others while they do the exciting work. And, and then you realize, well, but it's not you. It's the fragrance of Christ through you that matters. And if you'll just let that fragrance spread, it's attractive to people. It draws people in. And, and just like, a little bitty barbecue sandwich in a paper bag, the smell of it will permeate a huge room. The impact of one solitary Christian in a company, in a schoolroom, in, uh, in a neighborhood, on a, a ball team, or in an orchestra, or whatever group you want to name, that one Christian, if they're really living out the gospel, and by that I, I don't mean they go to church and they uh, follow all the rules. You should do those things. But I mean, if they demonstrate the joy of abundant living, if they show grace to those who don't treat them well, if they uh, love others truly, sacrificially, courageously, if they have integrity, those kinds of people, they send out a fragrance that is attractive to others, that draws people in, that makes people say, I want what you have. Through us, he spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. What kind of smell do you put out? That's the question you need to ask. So then he says, For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So what he's saying there is our, our reception is going to be different depending on who we're around. Uh, first of all, the, the idea of the aroma is a sacrificial term. When you go back to the Old Testament, when uh, Abraham or Moses or any of these Old Testament heroes, when they would offer a sacrifice to God, if it was a sacrifice that came from a pure heart, what does it say? It says the the Lord smelled it and the fragrance was pleasing to him. Now you need to understand, God is not a human being. It's not like he's saying, boy, that smoked meat smells good. It's a, it's a figurative way of saying, I am pleased with what you're offering me. Which, by the way, should be our goal whenever we worship. Here's another tangent, and I won't promise I won't chase it too long. When you go to church on Sunday morning, you're not the audience. You are offering God something. Is he pleased with the offering you give him? 
So yes, I know we always, when we go to church, we leave and we rate it and we say, well, you know, Robert did pretty good on this. And Jeff, well, you know, this wasn't one of his best days. And, you know, this, and, and I do the same thing when I visit other churches. I, I know that's only human, but the truth is God is asking, well, what did you do? What did you offer me today? Was that a, a pleasing aroma in my sight? So then he says, the aroma that we have, the aroma that we have is to some people life and to others death. See, to people who are on the path to salvation, in other words, to people who are receptive to the gospel, it smells like life. It smells like, man, I sure am hungry and that's exactly what I want. Uh, to them, when we come into their lives, we're like the allies coming into Paris and everyone rushing out to greet them and saying, thank you, thank you, you, you have saved us, you have liberated us from this five years of darkness. And there will be people like that in your life. If your goal is to shine out the light of Christ, if your goal is to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, I guarantee you, you will meet people in the course of your life who will say, I'm so glad God brought you into my life. Because if it weren't for you, I would still think that God was this angry, angry deity up in the sky who hated me. Or if not for you, I wouldn't even believe there is a God. But because of you, I know now that God loves me, that God sent his son to die for me. You're the first person that ever showed. Boy, if I'd met someone like you years ago, I would have become a Christian years ago. You will hear those kinds of things. On the other hand, you will also hear people who despise you for your witness. And that's not your fault. To some people, we are the smell of death. Last night, uh, some friends, in fact, they're members of this church, told us about this video. My wife and daughter came from their house and they said, watch this. So they found it online and it was called the, you can look it up, it's called the Stinky Fish Challenge. So there's this product, I can't remember what it's called, stir-stroming or something like that, but it's this canned fish they make in Finland. And essentially it's, it's pickled herring that they let sit out for about half a year. And they keep enough salt on it so that it won't rot, but it ferments. And then they can it and they sell it. And uh, people from Finland will tell you, oh yeah, you open that stuff outside and you let the smell wear off and then you can eat it. But So the challenge is to open the can and can you take a bite? And so you watch this video. I know this doesn't sound entertaining, but it really is. You watch these people, like one of them is, it's a group of firemen, big, tough, burly firemen. Another one is a family, a man and his wife and two little girls. And they're just trying, they open it. And just from the moment they open it, they just, oh my goodness. And they start, mm, mm. I mean, it's the funniest thing watching these people. They cannot believe how nasty this smells. To some people, that's the fragrance of Christ. Because that's how opposed they are to acknowledging that God is real or that God, God has any authority over their lives or that their lives are not their own. To some people, we are the scourge of the earth. Jesus made no bones about the fact. They hated me, and therefore they will hate you. Paul says all who live, who, who try to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. But when that happens, make sure they're not rejecting you, but the Christ in you. I've been a preacher for a while now, and I've known Christians who are very proud of the fact that they had a lot of unbelievers who hated them and who said, yeah, Jesus said I'd be hated. And look, there, there's the evidence. And, 
And what I realized is, you know, Jesus said they'll hate you because of me. Those people hate you because of you. I know you, okay? I know the way you live. I know the way you treat people. Uh, They're angry at you because you're arrogant. They're angry at you because you're judgmental. They're angry at you because, uh, because you treat people poorly. That's not persecution. That's not living godly in Christ. If, on the other hand, they're rejecting Christ in you, you'll know it because of the reasons they'll condemn you. They'll condemn you because of the same reasons they condemned Jesus, because he was too soft on sinners, because he treated people with too much grace, because he stood up for what he believed in and did not compromise. They will condemn something in you that is Christ-like because you get involved in a dispute and you try to make peace. They hate that. And so you'll, you'll catch flack for that. If you live like Jesus and they hate you for those things, then you know you're on the right track. And you can, you can take comfort in what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when they hate you and curse you and persecute you, for, for thus they did to the prophets before you. To those who are being saved and those who are being perish, who, who are perishing. And then he says, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. There is a confidence we have when we know we're in the will of God. It's different than arrogance. It's different than saying, I deserve or look at me. It's being able to lay your head on the pillow at night and say, I lived as best I could according to the Holy Spirit. It's Paul at the end of his life saying, I fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith and the future there's laid up for me, a crown of righteousness. You and I can have that. That's not just for apostles. You and I can have that confidence to say, I know I've done my best. I've given my all. And that's something we should shoot for. When I was first married, Carrie and I were first married, I was just out of college and I had a job working for a a tape company. We sold every kind of tape you can imagine, duct tape, uh, masking tape, even kinds of tape I'd never even heard of. I was the warehouse guy. There were really only three employees at the company. There was a woman that ran the office, there was a sales manager, and uh, there was me. And I when there were orders, I would box them up and ship them out. And when shipments came in, I would take them and, I, and carry them to the right spot in the warehouse. And I'd stack them and fold them. And, you know, I was in charge of all that. And it wasn't a bad job. But after about three months, I felt called to the ministry. That's when the Lord chose to give me that call. And I knew it was going to be another six or eight months before we were, we were going to be able to move to Fort Worth and go to seminary. And that was the longest six or eight months. And that job that I'd previously thought was, eh, this isn't so bad, got to be the biggest drudgery for me every day. I just dreaded it um, because it was just so meaningless. I mean, I, I, got, I, I got to where Sunday afternoons were the worst. After you'd get home from church, you'd go, oh, tomorrow I've got to go back to work. And there were literally times when at night I'd feel like, oh, my stomach's starting to hurt. Maybe I'll get sick. Maybe I won't have to go to work tomorrow. You know, that kind of thing. And... Uh, so, and I remember my boss, the, the sales manager, sitting me down and saying, you know, if you were to sell some of this product, you'd make some extra money. Do you know that? Just just go around selling some of this and we'll give you a commission. 
well, you know, I, I just wasn't all that excited about selling tape. I didn't know that our tape was any better than anybody else's. And even if it was, tape's not going to change the world. So uh, I just didn't get all that excited. And so about a month later, he sat me down and he said, listen, I'm not going to fire you anything. You're doing everything we ask of you, but you show up when we open and you leave as soon as it's quitting time. He said, when I was your age, I had your job and I got here early so I could set everything up and, and, and get things ready for the day ahead. And then I'd stay afterwards and I'd fill orders and I'd go buy companies on my way home and knock on doors and see if I could sell some of this product. And he said, and now look at me now. Now I am where I am. Now, my boss was a good guy. He was good at what he did. He was a good boss. But I remember sitting there looking at him and thinking, if I thought that being in your position was my greatest hope, I'd drive my car off the nearest bridge. <laughs> I'd walk in front of a bus. It's just, this is not what I want out of life. Um, and some of you know what I'm talking about. But whatever you do for a living, whatever you get paid to do, you really work for the kingdom of God. He's your boss. You work for the best company on earth. You represent him at your day job, but he's your boss. You represent the only company that offers what everyone needs most. Not tape and not soft drinks and not lottery tickets or whatever. He, it, it offers grace. It offers the gospel. It offers salvation. You have the power of Almighty God at your back. Knowing that anything He charges you to do, He's going to empower you to do. And the rewards that you have waiting for you are unimaginable. They're unbeatable. We have the best job in the world. Just remember that. We are led in triumphal procession in Christ. And he, through us, He spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him leading people to salvation. So let me lead us in a word of prayer and we'll close. Thank you, Lord God, that you have given us this calling. And Lord, we have different roles to play in that, in that company of believers, but all of our roles are important. I pray, Lord, that we would value the opportunities you've placed before us, each one of us, that we would see ourselves as valuable parts of your plan and that we would fulfill the commands you've given us Take advantage of every opportunity you place before us and make us a church that equips people to fulfill that purpose. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.